Welcome to the April 11th episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. And today's reading is 1 Samuel 17 and 18 and Luke chapter 11. Hopefully, you've already spent time in God's Word, so let's get started. First Samuel chapter 17, and uh, so this chapter is on David and Goliath, and and I want to camp out here for a little bit. So let's 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 spend some time in this chapter. As this chapter begins, we realize that the Philistine uh, army and the Israelite army are camped on either side of a valley, and they're in a face-off. Uh, and uh, they did what periodically happened in those situations. One man from one of the armies would come out and ask for one man from the opposing army to fight him in the open space in between. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 4 says this, Then a champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistine camp. He was nine feet, nine inches tall. Okay, so let's let's look at this just for a minute. Notice the word champion, then a champion named Goliath. In the Hebrew, that word champion literally means man in the middle. That's what that Hebrew word means. It, it means man in the middle. So when this Philistine army would go out against another army, Goliath, their man in the middle, would go into the middle ground and taunt the other army. Uh, he would dare them to send someone out to fight him. The fact that Goliath was still alive meant that he was a pretty good he was pretty good at being a man in the middle. So this incident with uh, the Israelite army that's happening in 1 Samuel 17 is probably not the first time that Goliath has done this. He's good at it. Nobody wants to challenge him. So how large was Goliath? Well, the original language, you know, the, uh, the translation I have, the CSB, said that he was 9 feet 9 inches tall. And one of the things about this translation is it doesn't so much give a word-for-word, word, um, which honestly no translation is word-for-word, word, or it would make no sense at all. There is no such thing as a translation that is exactly word-for-word. Um, but, uh, but here it goes on and makes the jump and just tells us nine feet, nine inches tall when original in the original language, it, it's six cubits and a span. And some translations do give that, but then you're left to wonder, well, how big is a cubit and how big is a span? Well, a cubit generally understood is generally understood to be about 18 inches or it would be like if you held your arm up then the distance from your elbow to the tip of your middle finger that would roughly be for an adult a cubit and then a span would be half of that and so anyway you do the math and he's roughly nine foot nine inches tall which means that on a NBA uh, rim you know, that a lot of the NBA players, they jump up to dunk a ball in. Well, um, Goliath was so tall that he would almost have to duck uh, in order to go under that rim. Pretty big guy. So, you know, how, how big was he? Well, when you look at the, uh, the, the weight of his armor, the guy was not just tall. He was apparently pretty muscular. 
So how did Saul respond to Goliath's 40 days of taunts? And we realize it was 40 days in verse 16. So how did Saul respond? Look at verse 11, 1 Samuel 17, 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. Okay, so Saul's terrified. Nothing new here. Uh, we aren't told that he encouraged and rallied his troops. They had a king, but they did not have a leader. So they were terrified, too. This is so pitiful. David was going, we read, David was going back and forth between his duties uh, to King Saul. Apparently, it wasn't a full-time position, no salaries and benefits, you know, and he still had his dad saying, hey, who am I going to get to watch over the sheep? And so David was just going back and forth uh, between tending the sheep of his father and doing the duties as the armor bearer of King Saul. But on one occasion, his dad sent him to check on his three oldest brothers. And listen to verses 20 and 21. He arrived at the perimeter of the camp as the army was marching out to its battle formation, shouting their battle cry. Israel and the Philistines lined up in battle formation facing each other. So imagine the scene. The Israelite army is chanting as they march in formation to the edge of the cliff. For the 40th day, by this time, every single person knows that they're in a stalemate. They know they're not going to go into battle. They're probably just bored to tears. They're scared, but they're bored to tears thinking nothing is going to happen. We're in a stalemate. Why not just go home? Why continue to do this if we're not going to fight? So David inquired with his brothers, uh, about how things were going. He had three older brothers, and as they spoke, Goliath stepped into the field for the umpteenth time and started taunting the Israelite army. And in verse 24, it says, When all the Israelite men saw Goliath, they retreated from him terrified. Oh my goodness. There's one guy, and there are a bunch of Israelite soldiers, and they run like they're scared. I mean, this, you know, I mean, one of the kind of things that we notice is things that scare us, if they happen to us over and over and over and over and over, and we realize that, oh, it was, it was something I got scared about, but it actually doesn't hurt. Nothing bad's going to happen. Well, then after a while, you don't run in fear, right? But for some reason, the Israelite army is still retreating. After 40 days, Goliath comes out and they get scared and they run. But David is getting upset. He's not running. He's getting angry. He's getting ticked. In verse 26, it says, David spoke to the men who were standing with him. What will be done for the man who kills that Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Some of the guys in the Israelite army told David what would happen for the one who slew Goliath. You know, hey, you'll get to marry the king's daughter and no taxes. But how many of you know, dead people don't pay taxes. But this was too much for David's older brother Eliab. He spoke up and ridiculed his little brother. Go back home to your sheep. I wonder if Eliab was still holding a grudge that Samuel had overlooked him, Eliab, as the next anointed and had anointed their youngest brother who was a sheep herder. 
It was a family secret. They weren't getting this out, but Eliab's critical comments to David may have pointed to the chip that he was carrying on his shoulder that his little brother got anointed and he didn't. And David asked some other Israelite soldiers. It's almost like when Eliab gave those critical comments, David said, speak to the hand, and he looked and he asked somebody else, so what's to be done? This is just to rally his courage. And David um, heard uh, about uh, you know what was going to happen, and King Saul called David in. Someone heard about this conversation. They called King, they called David in. Why? Because someone was finally demonstrating courage, and this was rare. That's why Saul called for David. Somebody finally is demonstrating courage. In verses 32 and 33, David said to Saul, Don't let anyone be discouraged by him. Your servant will go out and fight this Philistine. But Saul replied, You can't go fight this Philistine. You're just a youth, and he's been a warrior since he was young. David then proceeded to tell Saul about his previous victories. To protect the sheep, he killed a lion and killed a bear. And the same God who enabled him to kill those animals would allow him to kill the animal of a man who was defying the armies of the Lord. And this is a principle. One of the things that God does before he takes us into a victory is he takes us through other lesser things. Not all the time, but some of the time. So that our faith can be built on what we have experienced God do in our life previously. And so David was saying, you know, I'm ready to take the Philistine because God's already allowed me to take the lion and the bear. And so whenever you're going through some difficulties and you're trusting in the Lord and you find that the Lord is faithful, just realize that that is a stepping stone. You're stepping up onto that. Your faith has grown so that the next step of faith, even though it's going to be even bigger, is not going to be as difficult because you're standing higher on what God has already done in your life. In verses 37, Saul said to David, Go and may the Lord be with you. Why in the world would Saul put Israel's army into the hands of young David? I think it's because after 40 days of taunts and because Saul and his army were paralyzed with fear, um... That, uh, that, uh, that, that when David lost this, they could at least blame it on David. You know, I mean, Saul just thinks, oh my goodness, let's just, this is a month and a half. Let's get this over with. And, but he needed somebody to blame it. He didn't want the blame to come to him, not him. He's a man with an ego and self-conscious and everything else. And so he would blame it on David. Saul tried to suit David up in his own armor, but it was large and completely unfamiliar to David, so he took him off. And in verse 40 it says, Instead, he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi and put them in the pouch in his shepherd's bag. And then with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. We're, uh, one of the things is that Goliath saw David coming and, and mocked him. Goliath was mocking David, but then David explained why he, David, had the advantage. Listen to what he says in verses 45 through 47. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with a sword, spear, and a javelin. Ha! 
But I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him. Today the Lord, see, David is not claiming the victory for himself. He is not claiming anything for himself. He is saying, this is between you, Goliath, and the Lord, and you have taunted him, and so I'm just going to be a glove on his hand as he gives you a smackdown. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I'll strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God, and this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. I'm telling you, God and anyone trusting in him constitutes a majority. <laughs> when Goliath started to move toward David, David ran toward Goliath. And you can imagine that the noise that both armies were making on either edge of this valley was deafening. And with one smooth stone in his sling, he flung that and he killed Goliath. And then he used Goliath's spear to cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that Goliath was dead, they ran, they retreated, they were terrorized. The men of Israel, and you can bet Saul, borrowed David's courage. And we read in verse 52, The men of Israel and Judah rallied, shouting their battle cry, and chased the Philistines to the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. Philistine bodies were strewn all over the Sharaim uh, road to Gath and Ekron. Once again, we see that not only is fear courageous, but courage is courage. Uh, courage is uh, is uh, is spreadable. It's something that is infectious. Uh, it uh, spreads as well. After the battle. Saul wanted to get to know David. He knew him, but he hadn't really taken him too seriously. But after what he saw in the valley, he wanted to ask David, who, who are you? And listen to this scene. Allow this scene to be painted in your mind as we're getting to the end of chapter 17. 1 Samuel 17, verses 57 and 58. When David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head still in his hand. Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? The son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem, David answered. <laughs> I tell you, as I read that, I just want to go to David's older brother Eliab and say, What do you think of your little brother now, buddy? First Samuel 18. In 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 and 2, it says this, When David had finished speaking with Saul, um, Jonathan was bound to David and uh, in close friendship and loved him as much as he loved himself. Saul kept David with him from that day on and did not let him return to his father's house. So, we have a father and a son that want to spend more time with David. However, I believe their motives are very different. Jonathan, you remember, took his servant and attacked the Philistines courageously and struck down 20 of them with only one sword between the two of them. So I think Jonathan saw David as a man of the same cloth. 
cut out of the same fabric. He saw a man of courage just as he, Jonathan, was a man of courage. And so naturally, they were going to become close friends. But Saul, however, not being a man of courage, is someone who was easily paralyzed by fear. And having someone like David around could help him. How? Well, as long as Saul got the credit for David's victories, everything would be okay. But problems arose as David took Saul's armies out to battle. The problem was that David and the army kept winning. (laughs) And when a team wins, they tend to think very, very favorably of their leader. They weren't thinking highly of Saul. They were talking about David And we're told that the women sang a song with tambourines and three-stringed instruments, and this is what their song, how their song, uh, some of the lyrics of their song. It said this in verse 7. As they danced, the women sang, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Oh boy, Saul's going to hear about this. (laughs) Sure enough, in verses 8 and 9, Saul was furious and resented this song. They credited tens of thousands to David, he complained, but they only credited me with thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul watched David jealously from that day forward. I'm telling you, if you have someone in leadership or if you are in leadership and you are so insecure that you cannot celebrate other people's victories, people that are you know, horizontal of you and other equal leadership positions or people that are above you or those that serve underneath you, if you cannot cannot celebrate their victories, if you resent the fact that you are not being celebrated, then you are in a very, very bad position. Uh, That will drive you to make horrible, horrible decisions. And it's going to mess with Saul's head. He can't stand that David is getting more credit than he is. And so Saul tries to kill David. Listen to verses 10 and 11. The next day an evil spirit sent from God. And again, remember that uh, there is the active will of God and there is the so-called passive will of God. God is not passive, but it's considered passive in that the active will of God is what God actively initiates. The passive will of God is not what God initiates, but it's what God allows to happen. I think that this sending of an evil spirit, maybe a demon, was in God's passive will, that God did not actively initiate it, but allowed this to happen. The next day, an evil spirit sent from God or allowed by God came powerfully on Saul and he began to rave inside the palace. So he's just making all sorts of noise, maybe hitting the walls and everything else. And David was playing the lyre as usual. Remember, that's why they got David, because whenever Saul would have these emotional breakdowns, then then David would come in and play the harp and calm him down. David was playing the lyre as usual, but Saul was holding a spear and he threw it thinking, I'll pin David to the wall. But David got away from him twice. Now I'll have to admit that as I've read this verse multiple times, I still can't get over the word twice. If someone threw a spear at me once, they wouldn't have to try a second time. I'm out of there. (laughs) And so David, I guess, being a man of courage, said, you know what? 
the Lord is with me. And uh, so he went back to do his duty, maybe to play the, the harp again. And Saul threw the spear the second time. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had left Saul. Saul had absolutely nothing to fear from David. David was loyal and wouldn't dare touch the Lord's anointed, wouldn't dare touch Saul as the king of Israel. But small-minded people are threatened when others are getting the limelight. So Saul was afraid, threatened by David. But the people loved David. So Saul didn't feel like he could get rid of him, so Saul made David a commander over a thousand of his troops, and he sent him into multiple battles against the Philistine. Why? He was hoping that David would die in one of those battles. Then we get to the last ten verses of this chapter. And David demonstrates his humility at his resistance to become the king's son-in-law. Saul is wanting to kind of pull him in so that as he gets pulled in, then he's got a closer a closer opportunity, you know, a greater op- opportunity to take uh, David out. But David was resisting becoming the king's son-in-law because he was thinking, who am I that the king would allow me to become his son-in-law? Yet Saul said that the only bride price he would uh, have would uh, be a hundred Philistine foreskins. And you can only imagine that those Philistines wouldn't give something like that up so so easily. <laughs> You'd have to kill them first. And Saul hoped that David would die as he battled those 100 Philistines. But David brought back what Saul had requested and was married to the king's daughter, Michael. And listen to these last few verses, 1 Samuel 18, 28-30. Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved him, and he became even more afraid of David. Man, it's, it's like fear is the language of Saul's heart. And he became even more afraid of David. As a result, Saul was David's enemy from then on. Every time the Philistine commanders came out to fight, David was more successful than all of Saul's officers, so his name became well-known. And that, when you have a leader like Saul, is a very bad thing. Okay, so let's look at Luke 11. Now, in verses 1 through 4, we have in your Bible, if you've got uh, the... um, subjects, you know, or the themes that are written right above the verses. It may say over one through verses one through four, it may say the Lord's Prayer. It's sometimes called the Lord's Prayer, but it's not the Lord's Prayer. Jesus never prayed this prayer. Uh, when we read G- uh, and uh, John 17 and listen to Jesus praying, he never recited this prayer. Um, and I'm telling you, neither did he expect us to recite this prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He never, he never expected us to recite it. None of the other apostles ever recited this prayer. Um, it's, it's only, I think, maybe in our culture where we've got this thing where we like to every now and then recite it together, which it's okay because it's scripture, but it's not technically a prayer. A prayer comes from our heart. And I'm afraid a lot of times when this is recited, it's just mindless. Um, what this is in verses one through four is it's a model prayer. 
It's basically a skeleton of what some of the things or an outline of, 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 of what a prayer can address when it's talking about beginning with our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So Jesus said, you know what, if you're needing help uh, praying, why not start off with praising the Lord? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So talk about that for a little bit. Put it in your own words. And your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So pray about God's will. Well, what is God's will? God's will, according to, I believe, what Paul wrote to the church at, um, was it Corinth or Thessalonica, where he said, this is the will of God, your sanctification, you know, your growth and holiness. So Jesus said, okay, pray that, you know, uh, pray the other things that you believe to be God's will. So I just want you to know that as we look at what's commonly called the Lord's Prayer, it is not the Lord's Prayer. I think the model prayer, the outline prayer, you know, however you want to say it, it's given as something that we can look at and then kind of fill it in with our own words. Okay, verses 5 through 13. Um, Jesus created a scenario where someone in his audience were to, he said, what if one of you was to go to a friend at midnight and ask for bread because you had a friend come over and you had no food in the house? And uh, basically, Jesus is saying that your friendship is not necessarily at midnight. Your friendship is not going to be good enough to get your friend out of bed to open the door, to wake his whole family up, to give you some bread. Your friendship is not going to be enough. But he said, persistence? Oh, that gets the job done. You know, the fact that you just won't stop, you keep knocking, that's going to get the job done. This section is about persistence in prayer. And so we get when we get to verse 9... I want you to know that once again, the original language, an, a, an elementary knowledge of the original language kind of helps us out here. In Luke eleven nine, 9, it says, So I say to you, ask, and it'll be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. And so we look at this in the English and say, okay, it says I should ask. And we think, okay, ask once, and, and I don't get it. Seek once and I don't find it. Well, knock once and the door will be open to you. Well, I've knocked on heaven's door a lot and the door doesn't get open. God doesn't answer my prayer. Well, the fact is, is that ask, seek, and knock are written in the present tense in Greek. And the present tense doesn't necessarily mean that it's going on right now, but it does mean that it's happening continually. And that fits into what Jesus has just said, the illustration he just gave about persistence in prayer. So if I was to literally translate Luke eleven nine, it would say something like this. So I say to you, you keep on asking and it'll be given to you. You keep on seeking, seek persistently and you will find. You keep on knocking, knock persistently and the door will be open to you. And so... Luke 11, 9, the ask, seek, knock, is, is really talking about persistence. It should be translated in the continuous present. And um, so Jesus is, is talking about persistence. When we pray, we aren't just to pray once and then assume God's not going to answer. Some prayers are not going to come until we have our heart fully engaged, and it's demonstrated in the fact that we are not going to stop praying about it. We're praying persistently. When we get to verses 14 through 23, we see a house divided. And uh, in order to try to discredit Jesus, some observed, some in his crowd observed that, and they said that he was casting demons out by, in the power of Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. So who is Beelzebul? And some translations say Beelzebub. 
Eh, they're pretty much the same. Pretty much the same. But uh, Beelzebul, Beelzebub, um, is in the Hebrew language, it literally means Lord of the Flies. <laughs> Lord of the Flies. And uh, this was the word that, uh, that they used, one of the words at least that they used, to speak of Satan. And so when they said Beelzebul or Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons, they were literally referring to Satan. So they were saying, Jesus, you are casting demons out by the power of Satan. And Jesus pointed out that it was ridiculous to think that Satan was fighting against himself. He said, you know, if, if that's the case, then a civil war is broken out and all you need to do is step back and let him defeat himself. Jesus said he was casting demons out in the power of God. And then Jesus pointed out that his ability to continually cast out demons demonstrated his immense power. Listen to verses 21 and 22. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his estate, his possessions are secure. Right? So this is... Uh, you know, maybe Satan, the one, the strong man, fully armed, he's guarding his territory, what belongs to him or what he has claimed for his own. Well, his possessions are secure, verse 22. But when one stronger than he attacks and overpowers him, so who's the one stronger than Satan? This is Jesus. When one stronger than he, when Jesus shows up and attacks and overpowers Satan, he takes from him all his weapons he trusted in and divides up his plunder. Jesus said, I didn't come uh, as uh, someone who was in Satan's army fighting against Satan. I came as one that is infinitely stronger than Satan, and I'm taking back what belongs to me that he wrongfully took. Verses 24 through 26, uh, we read that uh, the words of Jesus in these verses give us a very important spiritual principle, and it's this. When we get cleaned up, uh, whether it's from a demon or a sinful habit, we better find something good to fill up the void. Because if we don't, that bad thing is liable to come back with a vengeance and we'll be worse off than when we uh, first started. And so when something bad goes out of us, we better replace that vacuum. Nature abhors a vacuum. We better replace it with something good. Um, some good habit, some godly trait, uh, because if, if it's a vacuum, then the, the bad will come back and potentially we could be worse off than when we started. In verses 27 through 28, um, in these verses, Jesus makes it clear that people uh, that are blessed are those who dig into God's word and do what it says. Verses 29 through 32, we have the sign of Jonah. Uh, Jesus spoke against the generation of folks who were listening to him, and they wanted a sign, a miraculous demonstration from Jesus. And yet Jesus said that they would only have the sign of Jonah. Listen to verse 30. For just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. So, what's the sign? It seems to me that Jonah, being in the belly for three days... And then coming out was a sign to the people of Nineveh that, wow, there's something about this guy. There's This story is profound. He's, he's still bleached you know, from all of the acid in the stomach. There's something to listen to. And Jesus said, you know what? Just as Jonah was in the belly of the well for three days, the belly of the fish, so Jesus, the Son of Man, would be in the belly of the earth for three days and then come out. He said, that's the sign, the sign of Jonah. 
And then Jesus said that it was a shame that the people of his generation weren't believing in him. Jesus, and you can read this, was so much better than King Solomon, and yet the Queen of Sheba came a long distance to listen to him. Jesus is greater than Jonah, and yet the people of Nineveh listened to him. Jesus is greater than both of those two, and yet many in his crowd did not want to listen to him. Now, we'll tell you in verses 33 through 36, uh, these words of Jesus are a bit difficult to understand, but the best I can make of it is uh, it seems that he's talking about how we must have eyes to see truth, and our eyes are connected to our heart, right? And so if our eye is good, then our body is filled with light. Well, that's just saying the eye is something that allows us to see and experience truth. Well, what's that eye? You know, what makes the eye good? It's really the heart. And so the problem I think that Jesus is addressing, the problem wasn't that these people needed another miracle. Instead, they needed to believe in what they had already seen. Their problem was a heart issue. Their heart was dark, so their eye was dark. Verses 37 through 54, uh, and we're finished. Jesus was invited to a Pharisee's house to eat. And the Pharisee was amazed that Jesus didn't first do the ritual washing. This isn't talking about hygiene. It was merely a religious ritual that Jesus refused to participate in. And so when they confronted him, Jesus, you didn't do the ritual washing. You know, all good Pharisees do this. Jesus went off on the Pharisees. He pointed out that Pharisees love to decorate the outside, to do the externals, but not work on cultivating a godly heart. And then a scribe said in verse 45, he should have kept his mouth shut, but a scribe said, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us too. Well, if he was looking for sympathy, he was sorely disappointed because Jesus then went off on the scribes. He said that they loaded people down with laws and didn't feel compelled to do anything to ease the burden. Well, you can only imagine that there was some indigestion that had happened as a result of that meal in the Pharisee's house. And we read in verses 53 and 54, when he left there, the scribes and Pharisees began to oppose him fiercely and to cross-examine him about many things. They were lying in wait for him to trap him in something he said. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, when I read about the Pharisees, it's easy for me to see their sinfulness. It's easy to see that they were frauds. They were all about doing religious activities to impress others, but their cold, the cold condition of their hearts made it clear that they were nothing but hypocrites. They didn't really love you. But Lord, when I look at myself, I sometimes see some of those same tendencies in my heart too. I show outwardly that I lead others to believe that things are okay with me spiritually, but sometimes I know that the condition of my heart does not match the things that I'm doing on the outside. Help me, Lord, to have... Um, I pray that you would help me to have a genuine love for you and to delight to obey you so that the action I perform, the actions I perform are a sincere reflection of a heart that belongs to you. I pray this in your name. Amen. I 
hope today's episode has helped you to understand and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Enjoying the Bible podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Check us out at fbcpolkcity.com. See you tomorrow. Thank you.